Welcome to the Innovation Roundtable Insights Podcast. This episode was recorded in Copenhagen during the 2018 Innovation Roundtable Summit, where our colleague Leonard sat down with Louise Io, Global Innovation Sourcing Director at Johnson & Johnson, to discuss the organization's innovation framework. Louise talks about the opportunities and risks of partnering and emphasizes the ability that ecosystems have to augment firms' capabilities. Louise also presents his approach for de-risking external partnerships and stresses the importance of relying on a capabilities matrix when assembling teams. Louise, thank you very much uh, for joining me in my little backstage studio. Thank you, Leonard. Thanks uh, for having me. Yeah, um, it's a pleasure to have you. Um, maybe we can start the interview by you just briefly explaining uh, who you are, uh, what company you work for, and uh, what role you have. Sure. So currently I'm a global director of external technology innovation. So that's a function within the R&D organization, part of Johnson & Johnson in the consumer sector. Maybe at the start you can give us a bit of an overview about kind of the, the innovation process or innovation framework of Johnson & Johnson and also kind of how, how your work or daily work plugs into that innovation part. Sure. Well, I would say, I mean, in general, the of course, the innovation process is a, a cross-functional process. Um, you could argue it starts, uh, so we typically use a stage gate uh, process to manage of, up to commercialization and typically starts on the ideation phase where we're trying to... Uh, feed the funnel and that's normally done in very close alignment with uh, our uh, marketing colleagues just to make sure that we are working on ideas that are commercially making sense and that can fit into the into the current business and into into organizations so of course there is a, a significant emphasis on keeping the current brands really fed with a good innovation and um, that the teams can work constantly on, on keeping that uh, uh, active. So we, we have a regular, I would say, for example, in, in our case, uh, we will typically work in cycles of uh, twice per year with ideation, uh, then that goes into an alignment process, sizing the opportunity, and when the teams feel comfortable uh, about the, how robust this idea is, then it goes into the uh, more formal approval process. Once approved, teams and budgets are uh, assigned to those ideas, and then those ideas become projects. What are some of kind of the the opportunities, but also risks when kind of reaching out to the exter external world? Well, how we see it and how I'm been trying to work around it. So you have to think that in general, and so in general, GNJ and specifically R and D is coming more from a tradition of uh, we do everything. Uh, all innovation or incremental innovation has always been done in-house based on our uh, technology platforms. As we see, I mean, we all know how everything is changing so quickly and it's very difficult to catch up with uh, 
uh, everything that is uh, happening. So I would say the opportunity of uh, partnering externally is really giving you that ability to augment your capabilities as a consequence augment your pipeline but also it gives us an opportunity to accelerate uh, we have been running this already for a while we have been learning also how to do it and really the opportunity to accelerate is uh, is excellent so when you really find this balance of uh, partnering and you find the right partners and you also need to do it in a way that is also compelling uh, for for your potential partner. So I would say the main the main opportunity or the main value that I see on this uh, external partnering approach is augment capabilities, but also accelerate our time to market through that approach. Now, in terms of risk, of course, the risk will be those that are typically for of an innovation process. When you do this with external partners, we need to be far more sensitive to those risks. One risk could be market risk, easy to understand, easy to communicate in a way, so things change, and that's we cannot understand that. A risk that is sometimes a bit more difficult to understand is when we might deprioritize an idea and if that idea was already uh, involving a, a partnership, then that becomes very sensitive. And it's also, we consider it's not fair that we operate in, in that way. So we try to mitigate that by putting a lot of uh, front-loading on the ideas. So when we think an idea can be enabled externally, we front load the de-risking, we make sure that there is a strong alignment around the idea. Typically, if it's an internal idea, the process flows, de-risking tends to happen a bit later, even in the, in the development process, of course, at the stage gate. But we are very sensitive that if we are gonna partner with somebody, we want to make sure that we anticipate a lot of these uh, elements. So we go with an idea that is, to the extent possible, is not an idea that we're gonna drop soon, at least not for internal reasons, and then it's something that we can decide, okay, that's something that we can uh, partner with somebody uh, externally. Th I would say that's, the main one that I see is extremely sensitive, that we take uh, a lot of uh, care to make sure that we avoid that. Um, there are many other risks, um, but if I pick one, I think making sure that you're working on the right ideas and making sure that you're working with the right partners is uh, very important and is very sensitive to the success of that uh, partnership. Where do you place kind of the teams that are working on external, with external partners? Where do you place them organizationally? Well, so typically we try to do this uh, very, very cross-functional. And I say very, very cross-functional is already uh, clear, but I want just to make emphasis 
on the importance of um, cross-functional collaboration at this very early stage, and in particular when we're talking about external uh, partners, so to make sure that we are taking all elements into consideration. So I guess your question, I, I would say, has one geographical aspect, and it has a function aspect. Yes. So in our case, of course, uh, we operate globally, and team members can be everywhere. Functionally is, again, is really cross-functional. So you have uh, supply chain, you have R&D, you have marketing, you have regulatory, so uh, uh, global packaging. So as many functions that will have an impact on the product design and also the collaboration with the partner. So, so that's uh, typically how you will start thinking at this very early stage, project management, of course. Um, then uh, uh, on the geographic, what we see is very important, especially at the very beginning of a partnership, is the physical aspect of the collaboration. And for that, we try to maximize the collocation of teams. Uh, we have also very successfully tried with uh, sprints, doing design sprints, focusing on elements of acceleration, but also doing it with external partners. And one of the key learnings is be there uh, at the beginning is a success factor. Doing this virtually, especially in that more complex situation, which is when you're bringing somebody from the outside and you're asking them to collaborate and you're asking for the, uh, you want everybody to be open, right? So collaboration happens when we all share what we think. So that physical aspect is, uh, is very important. So yes, global emphasis in being collocated and cross-functional. Who are those partners? So could you mention kind of a, a few examples of w who those partners uh, are? Well, so we're trying to look at this um, as an ecosystem. Now, this idea of ecosystem, which is not new, um, but I think what is new is the notion of orchestration. Orchestration of an external uh, ecosystem is extremely complex. It's already difficult to orchestrate your own internal teams. Imagine you want to bring others. So we've been trying to do it uh, step by, by step and keep it uh, relatively simple within the complexity. So these partners could be uh, companies that have a specific technology and typically partners that have a R&D capabilities, and they also have uh, scalability uh, capabilities. So typically, we're looking for complementary uh, solutions. So companies that have a technology that they can also uh, bring it to a commercial uh, level, and they can eventually also supply a global market so, or many markets or multiple regions. So I will say that. So in my particular case, because I'm um, in the, we call it the self-care space, what traditionally 
uh, what's called also over the counter, but we're really trying to expand that uh, that notion of how we look at, uh, uh, at our at not patients, but how we look at, at, at people that that want to stay healthy. So, of course, these are typically uh, companies that have a strong uh, pharmaceutical background. A lot of the things that we do uh, are uh, in that space, even though we might sell it uh, without prescription. But that's the kind of capabilities that, in my case, and that's because we're starting with this, uh, that's kind of the things that we're looking. Besides the technology, what are some of the other criteria you look at when you are assessing partners and whether or not that partnership could be fruitful, successful, uncomplicated? Sure. Well, so if you try to say just one thing is cultural fit, that's, of course, all the other things need to be in place, but you try to find that there is uh, this chemistry to, to collaborate. Now, of course, that is kind of part of it and is the overarching uh, element behind this. Uh, but we are looking for capabilities. We're not trying to look for things that are already there, right? So we're not looking for uh, somebody has a particular machine or... So we're really trying to bring the conversation up. So we're looking for what are the capabilities that, that will help to make this uh, particular technology or that make this particular project successful that are complementary to the things or the capabilities that we have. Right? So really, this change on the glasses of trying to really look at the capabilities uh, has been very helpful in uh, the way how we're pro approaching our partnerships. It completely changed the, the conversation externally and internally. Um, so then, of course, the capabilities can be very specific on different uh, projects, right? But, uh, but if you translate what is this idea uh, that you want to bring forward, and you translate the way how to make it happen to elements of capabilities, that's what we start uh, looking at. Then we try to follow a de-risking approach where we try to front load as many things and also assessing the partner is one of them. So uh, we will try to ask the difficult questions much earlier. You don't want to find out that things that are not working or that might be uh, difficult down the road uh, when you have already walked uh, a big uh, path into that, uh, into that journey. So how do you anticipate risk or um, issues that you know historically can... So we try to really draw from, from the experience of, of the teams and try to think, okay, so we have these issues in the past. How we can quickly and cheaply validate that this is not going to happen here. What we can do. Um, I mean, we saw many things about Agile, so maybe you can call it Agile, but it's really how do we bring our le learnings uh, 
and how we try to do uh, earlier, bring these uh, learnings into things that give us more confidence to both a partnership that the collaboration can uh, progress. You talked earlier in, in our conversation, you talked about we're coming from um, traditionally, and Johnson Johnson is not the only company, most of those companies are coming from kind of a very, we do all of, a, of the things ourselves. And um, how do you experience the, uh, the challenges or do you experience challenges with this mindset of not invented here to ideally someone proudly found somewhere else? Um, what are your experiences on, on this? Yeah, so it's, it's interesting because I, I try to take a different uh, view on those, uh, on those issues. And as I've been working on this uh, for, for a few years already, Yes, of course, there is uh, this uh, notion of not invented here or proudly uh, found somewhere else. Um, what I see is that I haven't met anybody that when you bring something from the outside that is good and is robust, I haven't met anybody that says, oh, but that's, that's not a good idea. A lot of the issues that I see where uh, people have a problem with something that is coming from the outside is when actually these things coming from the outside, we perceive, and that might be right or wrong, but we perceive are not as robust as the things that we could have done internally. I think, in my experience, this is where these not invented here is also happening because if you are somebody that you're, let's say you're working on the R&D function um, and then I bring something that is pretty similar to what you've been doing, your natural way of looking at it, you will start comparing and you will compare on the robustness of, of that idea and that might create a clash. But if it's really good, I haven't met anybody that says, no, let's not bring it. So the way how I've been trying to work around this is actually trying to find these good things. For me, it doesn't make sense that we bring things that we were already doing in-house. There's no point. And maybe they have other dimensions that can be a benefit and when people see those they typically would accept so I think it's a, a lot of communication and change management if you want if you want to call it like that but when you find things that are really complementary and you understand what is that will make that successful the adoption comes naturally let me get into a related topic and you've been talking about that already a bit agile and especially agile in situations where you have to do with tangible projects because i mean it comes from the digital world or the software world where changing features from one day to the other is not really difficult um, it, it just needs an update uh, on, on on the user's side so 
how do you apply kind of those methodologies when you have to do with kind of tangible things that are not so easy to change from one day to the other? Sure. Yeah, I can draw from some trials we, we have done and we've been also trying to learn and um, I have by no means any aspiration to be agile, scrum, expert or anything. I just, I, I think as I've been trying to work on this with uh, my colleagues, yes, of course, we're trying to, to get inspiration from those approaches and try to see how we, we can apply. So for, so for example, I think this element of, of de-risking front-loading, how you can understand uh, what things you need to either decide now and lock and uh, what are the things that you need to test, right? Uh, in, in, this, in this space where you have a lot of uh, regulations, basically, of course, your, your acceleration is not necessarily happening down the road. Your acceleration is happening on how quickly you can get these ideas into projects and how robust and better defined those ideas are. Some of the sprints that we try, the focus was really on product definition. This is something that we typically will take longer uh, if, if we follow our traditional approach and certain decisions tend to be more, uh, takes longer, even just because the nature of how the conversations are are happening. So one thing that we did uh, successfully was actually, okay, so when we do this sprint, the focus was on product feature definitions. Where do we want to launch it? Because that has an impact on the formulation. What are the at this point, the things that, for example, marketing will think will be critical and that we can lock now. Uh, I mean, you could talk about flavors, you could talk about colors, right? And then the, the acceleration is, also, is happening because you are front-loading those decisions. You're also partnering with, and this is the complementarities, people that have experience on how those things can benefit or accelerate or decelerate what you want to do. So that's that's an example. In also, in even a more uh, complex case, uh, was uh, we ran a big global uh, packaging redesign process. So that's as physical as you can get. And one thing that worked nicely was when we actually brought in this spirit of a sprint all the functions but also all the companies that will produce the parts for that packaging. Everybody in the same place, of course the, that's not easy because people need to be, I mean we had competitors in the same room, but we found a way that everybody feels comfortable sharing and discussing because we were all committed to accelerate that project. And on the spot, design decisions were made, and this is where you use digital. And of course, this is, we don't have our product fully digital, but this is where 
the complementarity of the capabilities. So our partners were pretty good are making simulations of the products on the spot. We do some of it, but for that particular case, they were able to actually, all the decisions we could simulate on the spot. Right? So, so those are things, and probably for other industries, they've been doing this uh, forever, but we have traditionally taken a more sequential approach to the things that we do. And in those cases that we try to really, okay, so yes, it's a, it's a bottle with a pump, and with a cap, and all these needs to work together, and it needs to operate in an environment that we would probably produce in uh, 20 different factories. How do you put together all that complexity? How do you understand that? And how do you accelerate that? So that's, that's one example. Then the other example on more of a pharmaceutical type of products. Again, so that's kind of what, what I was saying before. How do you then, then let's focus the sprint on the product definition, bring the expertise, and do that um, decision-making process faster. It's not so much about that we fail the product design or we fail uh, and then learn, which is another way of thinking on, on the sprint, in our case, by accelerating the decision-making process and bringing the right uh, people on the right time, that was a, a, a great learning on how to accelerate. So that's, we pilot, we created a playbook on how to do it, and now we are expanding that, how we do now acceleration on a different uh, phase or different step and how do we bring this more as a capability. So it's this approach of expanding but learning, this is what we learn, that, that let's apply that but then also multiply. Sometimes I, uh, I wish we could do 10x on everything but if we did uh, one uh, or we deliver, I don't know, four pilots or, or four projects, how we can do now eight, how we can do now 16, how we can go at least with some multiplier. And the only way you can do that is by partnering, bringing the expertise, but also bringing more people into how to do it. So it's a capability building process and it's a, uh, it's a learning process, it's a, it's a journey on how we can uh, apply these uh, things uh, uh, faster and bring more people in. You mentioned it briefly, but I, I just want to quickly follow up with a question also about not only tangible, but also about the regulative aspect of it. I mean, highly regulated area you're working in. How can you do things, kind of trying things out quick, quickly when when you are kind of subject to also authority uh, approvals in many cases. That's so what in our assessment on how to accelerate what we see is that downstream on the regulated process there's not much that we can do. So we don't own the clock. So and the clock is actually very complex because it's probably more than one. So we are typically dealing with multiple regulators, different regions, different countries. 
So what we're trying to do is to say is to focus more on this early stage. Um, at least at this phase, these learnings we can bring down the road. And of course, there are many things that we can do faster. But what we found is that um, our uh, biggest opportunity to accelerate is on how do we bring ideas into projects faster, better, lower risk, so they can follow and teams have an easier life dealing with those uh, uh, projects because there has already this de-risking uh, process happened. So we have drawn from experience. Uh, I give you a particular example. So we, act, we develop um, a matrix uh, that help us, helps team, teams to think how to de-risk that particular idea. What are the things that we have been learning that are typical issues down the road? So how do we bring, so bringing these learnings earlier uh, in a more structured approach, that's uh, how we have been uh, trying to do it in that uh, particular space. Let me ask you about kind of what, what skill sets do you need when, now I'm asking broader, not only about kind of agile and those more iterative ways of working, but more about the work you do on, on innovation and more general. What kind of skill sets do you need for this? And also, how do you put together those teams? Like what kind of people are working in these teams? What is important there? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. I have to say that's actually where I'm working right now. Um, so I'm partnering with uh, our uh, HR uh, colleagues and actually trying to define that uh, capability framework to do things like this. Yes, of course, many things uh, will come from agile or that, that type of thing. Uh, but it's almost like uh, you need to bring your, you need to design your capability heat map. So where are the things that you need to focus? They might be different project to project. There's a, an overall framework. And as you start assembling or when you have this project and you have this heat map or this matrix of things that you need or capabilities that you need and you plug a team, so the team will have strengths and weaknesses and how do we also make this a, like an, a learning uh, journey. If I were to take a few that I, I think are really uh, coming across as, as, as we do more of this, so there's uh, this element of external partnering, so be sensible to, to the collaboration is important. Uh, I see uh, things like uh, business acumen is very important because if you, you're not able to really, as much as you need to think on the technical solution, technical people tend to fall in love with the technology, but you also need to think on how, what is the business case of this, and sometimes not only the business case, but also how to communicate the, the business opportunity. Our, our stakeholders are not all uh, interested in the details of the technology. They're interested on how this is uh, doing a job or how this is actually helping uh, consumers everywhere, right? So those are things that, that you really see are critical. Also, something that I see is 
the teams that work at this early stage have different skill set than the teams that then make the project up to commercialization. And it's a challenge because ideally everybody's the same from, uh, how do you say, cradle to, to grave, but it's very difficult because the, the skills are, are not the same. So people that like to generate ideas and solutions, they are not necessarily the most structured people to make sure that a project is happening uh, uh, precisely and on time, right? So the, the, they are more maybe the creative. So at this early stage, you also need people that are good at uh, anticipating issues, uh, being good at uh, dealing with ambiguity. Nothing is clear. Uh, of course, I mean, we hear always uh, that uh, innovation is a, is a difficult space because you need almost to keep yourself uh, motivated. But if you translate that to a specific idea, yeah, sometimes the idea is not clear. How are we going to create value around that? Even if it's incremental, sometimes that level of ambiguity can also be uh, difficult for some people. So you need, that's something I see. You also need people that are able to drive some structure uh, in, 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 this, in this process. So how do I bring these people that can help me to identify and anticipate risk in this particular solution, but at the same time, how I bring them uh, in, in, in the right sequence of if I design a sprint, how do I make sure that everybody is actually contributing uh, into that uh, particular sprint and even being able to, to create a roadmap on the spot. All right, so you need basic skills like uh, how to do uh, a, a Gantt chart and you need more sophisticated skills, which is basically how do I draw the right questions into the right decisions and with the right technical assessment or at least I bring the right questions. So, so then that's part of my de-risking process. So that's uh, things, things and themes that I see uh, we need uh, in this uh, type of approach and at that stage of the, of the process. Let me ask you the last question, which is really a broader question. Um, how has innovation changed in the last 10, 15, 20 years? And uh, what are the reasons for those changes, you think? <laughs> well, that's a difficult question. I, I don't know if I can, get, I can give you a good answer. But um, from my, my personal experience, of course, uh, so I guess there are different aspects to it. Uh, one aspect, which is maybe the one that I, I see more obvious, is uh, technology access to technology, access to means of early prototyping. Um, I'm a mechanical engineer and I, I'm not that young. And I remember these big machines that we had in, in the labs. Uh, today, you can do this in a box. Uh, that, that is a huge enabler. So the ability of early prototyping if I thinking on physical uh, products and maybe not chemical, chemistry, or really more the physical, 
that has changed uh, dramatically. Uh, when I when I was a kid, my hobby was electronics, and uh, I remember I built uh, this uh, uh, ultrasonic mosquito repellent. And uh, when I think about the technology today, I can probably simulate that already in a computer, and I can already see how it will work and play with it. When I when I was a kid, I had to do my own uh, PCB, and I had to use uh, certain chemicals to to do the PCB, and I had to do everything myself, find the components. So I think the all these enablers, like, I mean, you can get things so quickly, so easy, right? So back in, in my day, I had to walk to the shop and talk to the guy on finding the, the components I needed for my, for my prototype. Today, I can get, I have everything online. So, te- all the, so technology, as a, whether it's a access to it or... Uh, access because I can get it quickly or access because I can actually use it, like could be a 3D printer, Printer. I think that's a huge change. And I think this is what uh, companies are, cor- big corporations are suffering today. The hinders of, or the, the things that were a competitive advantage in the past, they are not valid anymore. And I think that has a huge impact on innovation. Innovation has actually helped to make those uh, barriers uh, smaller and has basically le- level for everybody to play on the same, on the same field. So in the past, uh, big companies have big assets, uh, big factories, low cost if possible, but they could do things that nobody could do. Today, if you want to do your own brand, you find 20 companies that can do it at a very good quality, and you can develop your own own product. So I think all these elements of access is what has uh, had a big impact on innovation, and this is what big corporations are probably feeling now, the, the pressure, and that's also why you see there is uh, almost an exponential presence of uh, startups on almost anything. You see people working. There is no lack of ideas, and there is no lack of people finding pretty good solutions to many of those issues. So, so I think this uh, this is what I can see has. Uh, significantly change in my lifetime. Luis, thank you very much for that uh, interesting and pleasant conversation. Thank you, Leonard. The video version of this podcast can be accessed via innovationroundtable.online. The Innovation Roundtable online network is your portal to a wide variety of exclusive content, including video presentations, interviews, insights reports, and articles. Not only that, innovationroundtable.online is also a place where you can connect with other corporate innovators, share experiences, request collaborations, and gain inspiration from your peers. Our network is exclusively for innovation practitioners and large firms, so visit innovationroundtable.online to discover more and request your seven-day free trial account.